Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 26. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In just a couple of weeks, we're going to be back in the gospel of, of Mark. That's what we normally do here. We normally walk through books of the Bible, going chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Uh, but uh, those of you who've been with us the last few weeks know that we're kind of taking some time here at the beginning of the year to sort of pump the brakes and, and go through what we're calling like our DNA. Uh, sort of what are the building blocks of, of a healthy, biblical, Jesus-centered Church, what are the family traits that we want to be known by? What are the things that define who we are and the kind of church that we believe God by the scriptures is calling us to be? And so if you've been with us since day one, like a, a little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago with our original launch team, uh, then uh, the, some of this might be a refresher for you. Uh, for others of you that have joined us over the last year or maybe the last few months, uh, and maybe you're trying to figure out, like, why would anybody uh, want to start a new church? Uh, what kind of church is King's Cross trying to be? Do What kind of church do we feel called to be? Um, uh, then this is a great sort of series to, to, to be with us in. And so, uh, and so we've kind of been working through what, um, what we're calling our, our family traits, you know, in a corporate atmosphere. It might be called, like, our core values, Right? Uh, our building blocks, we've also called it. And, uh, and uh, when we started, we, we, we said, you know, our most foundational family trait is, uh, is, is truth. Uh, and that's truth with a capital T, uh, that we believe that truth exists, that it can be known, and that it has been revealed, that it is known uh, primarily in the scriptures that God has preserved for us. So we're a Bible-believing church. That's why we, we preach the Bible. That's why we keep turning back to God's truth. And then we talked about how like the, the pinnacle of God's truth, kind of the story of God's truth, is what we call the gospel. And that was our second family trait, that we want to be a church that's always centered on the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. We never move on from it. We, we don't treat the gospel as just like what gets us into the church. Uh, just what gets us into the kingdom. It's the very bedrock and foundation of all that we are. And then we talked about community, how God calls us not just, he doesn't just reconcile us with himself, but he actually calls us into a family, a community, and that every believer needs to be part of a church community. And if you're new with us, like we hope that that church community for you will, will be us, this church family, King's Cross. And if for some reason, it's not, or you feel like another kind of church community uh, would, would be a good fit for you, uh, we'd love to help you find another just Bible-believing, gospel-centered community in, in our area. Uh, we're all on the same team here, but we do believe that, that Christians need to be part of a church family. 
Uh, and so community was our, our third family trait. And then we talked about how uh, uh, we're all made for a mission. That was our next family trait, that uh, we are all made for a mission. The church was given a mission to make disciples, and we all have a part to play in that. And then last week, we talked about worship, about how we're all wired to worship, to make much of God, to find our satisfaction in Him. And this morning, we're going to be unpacking this idea of wholeness, of wholeness. This idea that when, when we encounter the grace of God, that when we start walking with Jesus, when God starts to work in our lives, he transforms us. And he doesn't just transform just a part of us. If we're truly following Jesus, he begins to transform us in, in, in every possible way. Not just in the ways that we, we think, but he, he, he changes our affections, the way that we, we feel about him. He changes the way we view the world and the way that we walk in the world. Wholeness, this idea that, that Jesus is after our whole selves. Now, now, now here's, here's my big push for this morning. My big push for this morning, and I want you to walk away from like the one thing that I want you to walk away from here this morning is I want you to know that God desires to make us whole in the truest sense of that word. He wants to make us whole in the truest sense of that word. Jesus says in John 10 that he came to give us life and to give us life in the fullest. Life and life in the fullest. And so we're going to talk about how does he do that and what does that exactly look like. You see, there seems to be sort of like this misunderstanding in sort of the Western suburban church. Like, by and large, like the church, like the big C church, like not just one church, but just church culture at large, especially in Western suburban culture, places like, like, like here where we live, like Orange County. There seems to be a misunderstanding in the Western suburban church that there is this, this sort of new category of Christianity that just does not exist anywhere else in church history. There's a new category of Christianity where we think that we're, where you can just believe in Jesus but not actually follow him. Where you can believe in things about Jesus without walking in his ways. There are people that can say, you know, like, I believe in Jesus, but that does, when they say that they believe in Jesus, it doesn't actually bear weight on their lives. It doesn't actually mean anything for them, like, practically speaking. What they mean is, you know, like, when, is they'll say things like, you know, I, I believe in, in, in some historic facts about Jesus. Sure, I believe that he's a savior. I believe that he rose from, from the dead, but it doesn't actually bear any weight on my life. It doesn't actually change my life. Now you might be here this morning thinking like, man, I'm new to this Jesus thing. Uh, I'm, I'm new in, in my walk. Uh, I've, I'm, I'm still kind of considering this, this thing. And, and, and man, this whole talk of like transformation and, and wholeness about how God changes us, like my, my, my life just doesn't reflect that. that and, I, and, and I almost feel shame or, 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 or guilt because of it. 
And if that's sort of like the, your, your thinking or, or, or the posture that, that, that you have, like I, I, I want to state clearly that what I'm talking about is not that, that we, we have to make ourselves whole in order to walk with God. What I'm saying is that when we encounter God truly, he begins that work in our lives. It's an ever-growing and ever-maturing process. And every single one of us is at different steps in that journey. And so that shouldn't be discouraging news for you, but encouraging news. That God is at work in the lives of those whom he saves. Uh, I, read, I recently read a story um, in the last couple of weeks that painted a, this incredible picture of of freedom, this incredible picture of freedom and, and what, it, what it looks like to be transformed by the reality that you are, are free from slavery. There's a story about uh, President Lincoln uh, when he was once uh, in the vicinity of uh, like a slave auction. Abraham Lincoln was in the vicinity and in, in, this, in this neighborhood, and he, he kind of witnessed this slave auction happening across the street. And he saw this young black girl up on the auction block and in her hands, this little girl had her hands and feet shackled. And they're oversized shackles because her, her, her limbs were so small. But she was shackled like nonetheless. And, and Lincoln, uh, witnessing this, just this little girl, this little slave girl being sold on the auction block, he, he becomes so overcome by and moved by compassion. And he, he places a bid on her to try and buy her so that he can set her free. She tries to buy her freedom, and he wins. He wins at the auction, and after the purchase, as the story goes, Lincoln told the little girl that she could now go free. She was now free from slavery, and in total disbelief, this little girl says, free? Free, sir, what does that mean? And he says, it means you're, you're free. You're no longer a slave. And then the little girl goes, so does that mean I can say whatever I want? And Lincoln go, goes, yes, little girl, say whatever you want. And she goes, does that mean that I can, I can be whatever I want to be? And Lincoln thinks about it, and he says, yes, you, you, you can be whatever you want to be. And then she goes, does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? And Lincoln responds, yes. You can go wherever it is that you want to go now. And this little girl with tears of, of joy in her eyes looks up at Abraham Lincoln and says, well, then I'll go with you. I have no idea if this story was actually true or not. <laughs> I have a suspicion that it's kind of like a, a fable, uh, but... I think it still paints a beautiful picture of the power of redemption, about what it means to be free to walk in a new and a whole life that you've been redeemed into. It paints a beautiful picture of what it means to be free and walk in, in newness of life, the new life that Jesus saves us to, life to the fullest. So I want us to dive now into the scriptures to see what that look like. We're going to jump around a couple places in, Ma in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 16, and then later we're going to be in Matthew 5. But first, uh, we'll be in Matthew 16. We just read it this morning. I'm going to walk us through three points. First, 
If we want to be transformed, if we want wholeness in our lives, we need to have a, a clear picture of the whole gospel. And then we want to see that whole gospel in our whole lives. And lastly, we're going to talk about how that brings joy to the whole world. So we want a whole picture of wholeness, then we're looking at the whole gospel in our whole lives for the joy of the whole world. You tracking? So let's go with the first point, the whole gospel. The whole gospel. First, we need to talk about the whole gospel because the gospel, if you remember from a few weeks ago, that's what transforms us. The gospel is what makes us whole. Now, in Matthew 16, uh, we, we read sort of like a, a version of this in the gospel of Mark uh, uh, some months ago. But in Matthew 16, what you need to know is right before this passage that we're about to read, Jesus just revealed to his disciples that he is the Christ. In other words, he just revealed to his followers that he is the king of all kings, the promised Messiah, the Savior, the Holy One of God, God in the flesh, the promised one. Jesus just revealed that to his disciples. You see, this is a key moment in his relationship with them because with the kind of things that he was teaching and the kind of miracles that Jesus was performing, Everybody in the region had an opinion on who Jesus is. Everybody had an opinion on why Jesus mattered, what he came to do. And so Jesus sits down, his disciples, has a, a heart-to-heart conversation with them and, reala- and reveals to them that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer. He's God in the flesh, come to save them. And at that point, We pick up in Matthew 16, verse 21, and here's what it says. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, I want you to picture like what this conversation must have been like for his disciples, right? Like they gave up everything to follow him. They gave up everything to follow him, his core group of disciples. They're seeing him teach like nobody else. Like all the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day are constantly astonished by Jesus' teaching when he's teaching in the synagogues. And then Jesus is out there performing miracles, healing the sick, making the blind see, making the deaf hear, raising uh, on people on a few occasions from, from the dead. And his disciples are following him around, and they're, they're just, they're, their view of who Jesus is and what he came to do is just like increasing again more and more and more. And then here we have in verse 21, it says that Jesus started to show his disciples. He started to sit down with them and explain that he's going to suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and scribes. He's going to suffer at the hands of his haters, the ones that have been constantly criticizing him throughout his journey, and that they would kill him, and on the third day that he would be raised. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus told his disciples this. He told it to them, he told them about his impending death like multiple times by this point, but this is the first time that they seem to actually hear it. Because it's the first time we see in the Gospel of Matthew that they're actually disturbed by what Jesus is saying about his death. You see, they had their own assumptions about what Jesus came to do based on all the things they heard him say, all the things they witnessed him do. Like, imagine being in their shoes. 
and having this guy that you gave everything up to follow who's just been outdoing himself at every moment with the feats that he's performed and the things that he's been teaching, telling you that just around the corner in just a few moments, you would die and be crucified. Imagine being in their, in their, in their shoes. Like, like they, that, and that would have been shocking, right? And it was for them. We, we especially see that in their response, especially in Peter's response, because they had their own assumptions about what Jesus came to do. You see, his disciples, they were Jews, and they were being oppressed by the Roman government at the time. And the Jews had a rich history of being a small, unimpressive nation that God just completely, uh, like again and again, keeps delivering, keeps being there for, keeps, keeps showing grace to and delivering them again and again from their enemies. But now there's a period of time where God just seems to be far away and silent. They're tired. They're oppressed. And they had these promises from their scriptures about a Messiah who would come and save them from that. You see, but their view of what Jesus came to do, the kind of salvation that Jesus came to bring for them was too small. They thought that Jesus came just to save them from Rome. You see, they were partly right, but they hadn't quite grasped that Jesus came to save them also from sin and death to make them new citizens of his heavenly kingdom. They had in their minds sort of like this earthly, temporal sort of salvation and redemption. But Jesus came to bring something so much bigger, something more beautiful, something better. And, and, but they didn't understand that. And this is why Peter's all upset in verse 22 where he says, where it says Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter rebukes Jesus and says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter's like, no, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm not going to let you die like that. He's saying, Jesus, have you lost your mind? This will never happen to you. Why did Peter get so bent out of shape? Because a Messiah that suffers and dies is not the kind of Messiah that Peter signed up for. It's not the kind of savior Peter thought he was following. But look at how Jesus responds. He says in verse 23, it says that Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, which I mean, those are big words, right? And then he says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I mean, Jesus here, he lays into Peter, right? calls him Satan, says you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but you have this manly perspective on it, not a godly perspective. Why the harsh words? It was because the problem here was that Peter's view on who Jesus was was so just one-sided. Peter wanted the kingdom of Jesus without the cross. His view of Jesus was too small. Peter had in mind physical oppression, not spiritual oppression. And so Jesus lays into Peter because he knows that when we only take part of who he is and not all of who he is, then we miss him entirely. That's why the sharp rebuke. I'll put it simply. When we take part of Jesus, but not all of Jesus, then we have none of Jesus. 
When we'll only take part of Jesus, only part of the gospel, but not all of Jesus and all of the gospel, then really, like, we miss the gospel all together. Now, as, as an ordained minister, like, one of my, one of my favorite things that, that, that I get to do outside of just, like, pastoring this local church is officiating weddings, right? Like, I love officiating weddings. Just the, the, the just, it's, I mean, weddings are, are, are just one of those, uh, normal uh, gatherings that, 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 that almost like every human like does, right? Like every culture has some form of a wedding, right? And weddings are always sacred, right? There's always a sense of sacredness to a wedding. Regardless of your religious background or religious affiliation, there's just something sacred about weddings. And of course, like, like I'm coming at it knowing that the reason that we have this sacred sense of what a wedding is is because a wedding, like a, a, a wedding covenant, a marriage covenant is something that's been ordained and designed by God. That's why, that's why we have this sense of, of sacredness about it. But I love officiating weddings, especially when you have two people that are doing something totally countercultural and making covenant vows to one another. And we all know those traditional vows, right? For better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for in richer or for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. And at that moment, you know, the, the bride and the groom, they, they, they hear these, they sometimes recite them back, but they, 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 they in some sense will say, like, I do, right? They say, I do. Now, no one goes to a wedding where when those, those vows are read, uh, for better or for worse, and sickness and health, and richer for, for poor till death to do us part. Like, 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 no one witnesses a wedding where, you know, the bride and the groom are, like, hearing that, and they're like, huh. I don't know if I'm signing up for that, right? Like, like, like no bride's going to be like, um, how about just for richer, right? Not for poorer. Like, like no, no groom's going to say, like, how about, like, only in the health, but not in sickness, it's like, no, the reason we say for better, for worse, in sickness and health, for rich, for poor, for death to his part, is it's two people that are saying, look, I'm making a promise before God and these witnesses that look like no matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, no matter how hard or difficult it comes, no matter what I'm feeling, like I'm making a promise to you, I'm making a covenant to you, we're in this for life. All of it. In the same way, Jesus lays in the Peter because he's saying, look, you can't just pick and choose your favorite parts of me. You can't just be with me for the kingdom part, for the redemption part, and not want my cross. He says, you can't get my kingdom without the cross. You're only looking at this from man's perspective, Jesus says, and not God's perspective. You see, Peter wanted a Messiah who didn't suffer. He wanted a king without a cross. He had a vision for the kingdom aspect of the gospel, but not the cross. That kind of sort of cherry-picked vision of Jesus is so opposed to God's grand, glorious, gracious, beautiful plan of redemption that, that Jesus lays into Peter over it. It's like the basic ingredients of one of my favorite food groups, which is cookies, right? You got flour, you got sugar, and you've got eggs, right? If you want it to taste right, you need to have all those things in there, right? You can't just eat 
a raw egg and call that a cookie, right? You can't just eat plain flour and call that like a pleasurable experience, right? Like that's, that's not a cookie. And when we take an ingredient out of the gospel, then it no longer is the gospel. Peter was missing the cross aspect of the gospel, the reality that, that the cross was needed. Peter was missing the right reality, the deeper reality, that not only did they need to be saved from Rome, but the reality that we're sinners in need of saving. That we need to be transformed from the inside out. That we're broken and need to be made whole again. And we still do this today. We still do this today. Like we live in a culture that tries to subtract from the gospel. We live in a culture that tries to to add to the gospel. In a culture that is not satisfied in the whole Jesus, in the whole gospel. And when we do that... When we do that, when we sort of cherry pick the aspects of Jesus and the gospel that we like and, and, and kind of leave out the others, then it doesn't, it, when, we, when we just take parts of the gospel, not all of it, it, it doesn't, that doesn't actually change the gospel because the gospel is like set, it's unchangeable, right? When we do that, we're not changing the gospel. What we're doing is we're actually changing the gospel's effect on us. Does that make sense? We're changing the gospel's effect on us. You see, throughout church history, there have been ebbs and flows of different movements that focus on one aspect of the gospel over the other. One aspect of the gospel over the other. Now, this is a bit of a review from what we did a few weeks ago, and I promise we'll get into transformation and wholeness. But um, you guys remember that when we went through the gospel story? Like, you, you, I mean, you've heard this time and time and again here with, like, the gospel, like, the story of the scriptures can be split up into, like, four different chapters, right? We got creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, right? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now, <clears throat> creation is this, this idea that, like, God, God made all things and that he made all things good, right? Like, in the beginning was the garden that God was king and that he ruled perfectly over all, right? And then, and then what happened in the fall is that, is that sin entered the world and started to corrupt all things, Namely, it corrupted man's heart, and we became sinful, not just uh, in the acts that we committed, but we also became sinful by nature, and we were in need of saving. And so that's why the third chapter, we've got redemption, the story of Jesus. That's the whole point of the scriptures, is how Jesus came to save us from sin, from evil, from death, to restore us to the good life that we had in the beginning at creation. And that restoration is what we call the fourth chapter, that God in his grace just, just restores us to himself. And if you look up at the screen here, and you'll, you'll notice that I've got uh, three words uh, that sort of encapsulate each of these, these chapters, right? And so in the gospel story, uh, you have creation, how everything was good in the beginning, right? Everything was perfect under God's perfect rule and reign. And in the gospel, we are returning to, to that, right? Like, like we, we, we've been reading about this in the gospel of Mark, how Jesus says, repent and believe for, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, I'm going to return things to the way that they were supposed to be, the way that they were in the beginning, right? And so that's the good news of the kingdom. Now, the, 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 the second word, which is, encapsulates chapters 2 and 3, Fallen redemption has to do with the cross. This idea that that Jesus came 
not just to restore us back to the goodness in creation, but that Jesus came to absorb God's wrath on the cross. Jesus came to, 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 to pay the penalty for our sin, sin that we inherited and sin that we commit, right? And so Jesus came to absorb that penalty on our behalf so that we can stand justified before God. And that gift, that gift of salvation is a free gift of, of grace, Grace that doesn't just begin with us today, but grace that, that carries us on into eternity, that brings us into God's forever family. And so that grace is attached to that third chapter, restoration. Now, why do I break it up like that? Why do we talk about kingdom, cross, and grace? Kingdom, cross, and grace is because like these are three aspects of the same gospel. Three aspects of the same gospel that sort of like are attached to one another and build upon one another, and you can't separate one from the other. In the same way that you can't separate flour from the sugar and the eggs, right? And, and still call that like a cookie. Like you can't, you can't do that. You got to have kingdom, cross, and grace when we're talking about the gospel. Now, here's, here's why that that matters. Like, here's where that gets practical. Because you might be looking at this and saying, like, cool, that's great, like, philosophical theorizing, but, like, what does that actually mean for us as a church? What does that mean for us, like, here in the trenches, down at the base level? Now, if all we're about, in terms of the gospel story, is the kingdom of God, then then, then, then all we'll be about is about uh, like doing and living as though, uh, as though Jesus is king. Living our lives as though things are under God's rule and reign. And so if we're, if we're all about the gospel of the kingdom, then it's all about just the great things that we do for the Lord, right? It's about, it's about justice. It's about, it's about work. It's about working as citizens of, of, of the kingdom. And if we're all about the cross, then everything becomes about, uh, then everything becomes about like, like sin and, and, and salvation, right? Which is obviously a part of the gospel story. But if that's all that we're about, then what happens is, is, is churches become so inward focused. And then we're, we're all about like our inward sort of salvation club. And then it becomes sort of like an us versus them mentality, Right? That if you're if you're in, then 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 if if you're saved by Jesus, then you're in, and if you're not, then you're you're out there, right? And then there's the 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 uh, the good news of, of of God's grace, just this idea that that God doesn't just accept us uh, because we we work our way in or because we believe the right things, but that He's He's accepted us by grace. That it's a free gift of His grace for us. Right? And this, by the way, like biblically speaking, like there's three aspects to the gospel, God's kingdom, God's cross, and his, his grace paint for us a picture of the whole gospel, which, by the way, is why we call ourselves like King's Cross Church, because we want to be a church that's just sort of balanced, a church that's, that's whole, that's focused on the, the kingdom aspects of the gospel, the fact that God is bringing things under his rule and reign and that we're to participate in that. But we also want to be clear about the cross aspects of the gospel, the fact that like we're sinners that are in need of God's grace. 
but we also want to be clear on like the grace aspects of the gospel. The fact that we don't work our way into the kingdom, but that it's freely given to us as a gift of God's grace. And this whole picture of the gospel is, is what makes it beautiful. Having this whole picture of the gospel is what makes it better. This whole picture of the gospel engages not just our head, but our hearts and our hands too. Because if you're all about the kingdom, then all you're going to be concerned about is doing things for God, right? If you're, if you're only about the cross, then, then all, all, all you're, you're going to be concerned about is, is believing in the right things, thinking the right things. If you're all about grace, then, 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 then you, you'll, all, all you'll be concerned about is just sort of like, uh, like your experience and, and sentimentality and, and hospitality towards others. And again, all of those are important. All of those are aspects of the gospel, but we can't divorce the one from the other. We want to be kingdom people. We want to be cross-minded people, and we want to be people of grace. And when we have that picture of the whole gospel, only when we have that picture of the whole gospel, then can we now apply that whole gospel to our whole lives. And that's our second point. We want to see the whole gospel in our whole lives. Read the next two verses of Matthew 16 with me. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples, he said, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, if we let the whole gospel bear weight on our lives, then it changes all of us from the inside out. Just like that little girl who says, if that's what it means to be free, then I'm following you. I'm following you with all that I am. And it becomes more than, the gospel becomes more than just info in our head. It, 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 burns, it starts to burn in our heart. And it starts to produce fruit in our lives. You see, true Christianity isn't just about believing in Jesus, but it's about becoming like him and walking in his ways. True Christianity isn't just about believing in things about Jesus, but it's about becoming like him and walking in his ways. You see, this is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus isn't just thinking things about him, but it's actually walking in his ways. It's a following him with your whole life. How many of you guys know what that actual word, disciple, means? Disciple means follower. Or like a, a, another word attached to it is like it can mean like apprentice, right? It's somebody who spends time with him. It means that you immerse yourself in him through the gospel, through the word, through prayer. It means that you surrender all of who you are at Jesus' feet. You see, back in Jesus' day, to be considered a disciple of someone like a teacher or a rabbi like Jesus was, then you'd actually have to leave, like physically leave your old life behind and follow this person around. Like to be an apprentice, to be a disciple of somebody, you had to leave your whole old life behind. You had to leave your family, your old life, and, and, and follow this person around. You couldn't just like Skype into a weekly coaching call. You didn't just subscribe to his feed and sign up for his newsletter. Like, no, you had to leave it all behind. 
You had to follow him around on foot. You had to sleep at his side. Jesus says, if you want to go where I'm going, then you need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and follow me with all of who you are. Now, you might be thinking the obvious at this point, which is like, you know, well, how can we do that if Jesus is no longer here in the flesh? If he's ascended on high to the right hand of the Father, how can we do that in any meaningful sense like today? How can we follow him and apprentice under him the way that he called his disciples to? But Jesus actually tells us in, in John chapter 16, he tells his disciples and he tells us that it's actually better for us that he's no longer with us in the flesh. He says it's better for us that he's going away because he's going to send the Spirit of God to be with us as a divine helper. So now what does that mean? That means if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are an apprentice of Jesus, if to be with Jesus and to follow him now means that you slow down and you open up your heart and your mind to the word of God as the spirit of God just illuminates it for you. It means to be a follower of Jesus today, you surrender yourself completely to his gospel, his whole gospel, his whole word and his whole mission. Jesus says, if you want to have eternal life, to live life as it was intended to be lived, then he says, you're going to have to follow me and take up your cross. What is the cross? The cross is a symbol of death, right? It's what Jesus was crucified on. And when Jesus tells his disciples, you need to take up your cross, he's not talking about like a burden that we have to carry in, in life, like, like, like oh, I have to take the Torah road every day. That's my cross to bear, right? Like when we use that phrase, cross to bear, in that way, we're, mis, we're misusing that, that phrase. Taking up a cross is about self-denial. It's about complete surrender. It's about renouncing our personal ambitions and saying, look, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm going to live for King Jesus. This call from Jesus is his way of saying, look, don't build your life on what can be taken from you. If you do, then you'll lose everything. He says, what good is it to gain the world if you're going to lose your soul? Jesus calls us. He says, give up the claim that you have on your own life and live for me. He says, it's about holding nothing back from him. You see, we tend to only want to give Jesus the things that are naturally easy for us to give him. Think about that. We tend to only want to give to Jesus the things that are naturally easy for us to give. That's not wholeness. That's not letting the whole gospel into your whole life. You see, Jesus calls for all of us. He wants us to be whole in the truest sense of that word. He wants us to walk in all his ways. That's why when someone asked him, what is the most important commandment in all the scriptures, scriptures, Jesus answered in this way. He said in Mark 12, verse 30, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, you may have heard me like, like, like lay into this a, a, a few times here because I think this is so important for us as a church family. We want to be the kind of Jesus followers that love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That word heart in the English, when we think of heart, like 
heart, heart uh, we, we tend to translate that as, as how we feel, right? Like our emotions and all. But in Hebrew, which Jesus is quoting when he says this, it's a bit more than that. In Hebrew, the heart is the core of your identity. It's the source of all of your thoughts and words and actions. Everything that you are flows from your heart. And so to love God with all your heart is to love him with the the purest, deepest, and truest part of who you are. It's to love him with your inner being from the depths of your soul. And when he says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, that word soul has to do with like our passions and our emotions. It's the life force that fuels you. Whatever it is that gets you up in the morning and drives you, the soul is where your deep-seated passions live. Even the most introverted person among us has that like one thing that'll sort of loosen the gears, right? Where once you get them talking on that topic, like they'll just let loose, right? Could be at a job, could be a hobby, a game, the news, history, politics, nutrition, fitness, whatever it is that's your thing that you get passionate about. Like we all have something that we're passionate about. The things that get us out of bed, that fuel our passions. And Jesus is saying, look, above even all of those other passions, love the Lord your God with all of your soul. That doesn't mean you don't get to have other passions. It just means that you place God in seat number one. And let all that you care about just flow from that starting point. And then Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. That word mind has to do, of course, with our intellect, right? How we think, what we believe, our mental faculties, the way that you reason, logic and rationality, right? Like some people have this, this, some people in secular culture, it's like they have this assumption that in order to be a Christian today, you have to check your mind at the door. But Jesus says, no, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Elsewhere, the apostle Paul says, look, don't just take my word for what I'm saying. Don't check your mind at the door. Study this. Get into it. See if what I'm saying is true. We're invited by the scriptures to engage our minds. Now, look, this is important because I I really want to highlight this point because for the last century and a half, for whatever reasons, probably the devil's scheming, there's just been this small, but sort of growing undercurrent of like anti-intellectualism in the church. And that might be why the skeptics accuse us of that is because there are many movements within the church that are, uh, that are pursue sort of like this anti-intellectualism. Like a lot of Christians respond to, uh, have responded in the last century and a half by placing more weight on the heart than they do the, the mind. Where there's a greater drive to feel or to emote or to experience faith in a personal way at the expense of thinking well. And look, we should have passions, Right? We should engage in our heart like like God stirs our affections. I mean, you read the Psalms, right? Like read uh, just the Old Testament, New Testament. We see God's people having their hearts stirred with affections for him. But we can't have that at the expense of thinking well. We can't check our minds at the door. How does this make me feel shouldn't be more important than is this true? And how should I think? And so what's happened is people kind of downplay theology and doctrine and dogma like it's just like a fringe academic sport for like brain jocks, right? But that word theology, that word theology is made up of the words, the Greek words theos, which means God, and the Greek word logos, which means word. 
So in its simplest sense, that word theology means words about God. Words about God. So if you've ever said anything like Jesus saves, then you're doing theology, right? If you're a skeptic and you're saying, I don't think that Jesus saves, he didn't save, or he's not real, like you're doing theology. Theology isn't something that we should be afraid of. Engaging our minds and thinking about God is something, isn't something that we should hold at arm's length because the more that you know God, the more that you know God, the more that you know about God and all of his splendor, the more you can actually come to love him for who he really is. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer where he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So we want to make sure the right things are coming into our minds about God. Lastly, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your strength. With all your strength. This, of course, has to do with what we, what we do, right? Our actions, what we do. Your strength, your might, your body, your energy. Jesus is saying you're to love the Lord your God with all your gifts, with your finances, with your talents, with your experiences, your education, your abilities. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Even in your eating and drinking, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And so with all that we have in our working, in our laboring, in our dreaming, in our planning, in our creating, in our innovating, in our teaching, in our learning, in our writing, in our consulting, whatever it is that you do, Whatever it is that you do for work, whatever you enjoy to do, do it all as an expression of love and worship to God. Wherever he's placed you, however he's wired you, love him with all of that. We believe that the scriptures teach us that God is sovereign, right? God is sovereign and in control. That means there is no mistake that you live in the time and place that you live. There's no mistake that you live on the street that you live on with the neighbors that you have to your left, to your right, across the street, or above or below you. There's no mistake. Wherever it is that God's placed you, love him and love your neighbors with all your might. And your vocation and the work that he's given you to do, love him with all your might. And you're serving others, whether it's inside the church or, or out in the community in your recreation, where you rest and where you play, and all that you do, even in your eating and drinking, do it all for the glory of God. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Why does he say it like that? Why does he say it like that? Why does he list these four things? You see, the point Jesus is trying to get across is he's saying, love him, Love God with the whole of who you are. Love God with your whole being, with all that you are. You see, we are holistic, integrated beings. So when he says heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus is saying these aren't just four pieces of your personality. Pick which one you are, right? He's saying, no, we are whole people. And Jesus is saying, love him with all of that you are, with the whole of who you are, with your whole life, all of it is to be an expression of love to God. And when we do that, 
When we do that, there's this sense of wholeness that God is calling us to when we allow the whole gospel to bear weight on our whole lives. And in the work that we do, in the witness that we have, we bring joy to the whole world. That's our third point. The whole gospel in our whole lives for the joy of our whole, the whole world. You see, something radical happens when God's people live out the whole gospel in their whole lives. I want you to read now back in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in thir- verse 13, and I'll read to the end of verse 16. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then he says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, how many of you heard this before? Jesus calls us as his followers, salt and light. Salt and light. Now, when we read that, when Jesus says we're the salt of the earth, like in the 21st century, we don't quite know what to do with that, right? Because we don't, we don't use salt in the 21st century the way that they did back then in the first century, right? To us, salt is something that we use to like add flavor, right? To add flavor or to uh, enhance flavor, But back then, in the first century, salt was primarily a preservative. It was something that you put on foods to keep them from rotting. And so Jesus is saying here, you're the salt of the earth. He's saying, look, as a preservative, your function as a people is to be agents of change and redemption. Your function as a people is to keep the world around us from being further corrupted by the effects of sin. And he says, in verse 13, he says, don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your saltiness. Which, by the way, like scientifically speaking, salt can't lose its saltiness. True, pure salt can't lose its saltiness. The only way that it can lose its saltiness is when it's diluted. You see, one of the ancient processes of like ripping people off in the first century is one of the same ways that like in certain fields, like in, in the medical field or like in, 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 the, in, in, in like narcotics or like drug areas, right, of, of today, the way that people will rip other people off is, is you take a pure substance, like some kind of chemical substance, and you dilute it, you mix it with other impurities, and you sell it as though it was pure, when it's not. You see, one of the ancient processes of ripping people off in the first century with salt is you would take a pure substance like salt, pure salt, you'd mix in it with the impurities, and then you'd sell it as though it was pure salt. So someone would take a bag of salt, and if it was diluted, then when you rubbed it like on, on meat or something like that, it would still eventually rot quickly because that's not pure salt. And if salt lost its saltiness, that means it was diluted. If it gets diluted, like if it's half salt and half something else, if it's a quarter salt and three quarters something else, then it loses its ability to be what God designed it to be. So ask yourself, 
Am I allowing the whole gospel to bear weight on my whole life? Am I allowing the whole gospel to bear weight on my whole life? On my whole life? Ask yourself, like, how are things with you and Jesus right now? Are you living under his rule and reign? The kingdom aspect of the gospel. Are you living in the freedom of the cross? Pursuing, uh, fighting your sin, the freedom of the cross, the cross aspect of the gospel. Is your life marked by God's grace, the grace aspect of the gospel? Or perhaps ask yourself, how's your heart and soul? How's the life of your mind? How are your thoughts of God? What do you do when no one else is around? You see, Jesus says when we keep the gospel, when we either have an unwhole gospel or, or we take a whole gospel and don't apply it to our whole lives, then we become deluded. We start to lose our saltiness. He calls us to, to, to let the whole gospel into our, 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 our whole lives, heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, he wants us to be whole. He says we're also light of the world, light of the world. He says that in, in verse 14, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Down in verse 16, he says, Let your light shine, therefore, before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, quick note on that. Your good deeds are not the light of the world. Your good works are not the light of the world. Your position in the church is not the light of the world. Ultimately, Jesus is the light of the world. We know that because it says that in John chapter 1. And so here, when we're called the light of the world, what he's saying is as followers of Jesus, as adopted sons and daughters in his family, we reflect his perfect light. We become reflectors of God's glory. And the way that we reflect that is by living lives that shine out and display in every area of our lives that there's something more important than us. We lose ourselves, we take up our cross, we follow him with all that we are to make much of him. It's a way of saying that there's something more important than me worth living for. You see, Jesus wants us whole, the whole gospel and our whole lives to bring joy to the whole world. We don't pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we like and ignore the ones that are hard. You can't call him Lord and you can't call him Savior in any meaningful sense of those words if you don't allow him to call you out of your comfort zone. You can't call him Lord in any meaningful sense of that word if you don't allow him to challenge you in, the, in, in, in areas of your life that are uncomfortable. You can't call him Lord and not surrender all to him, the whole of who you are, to him. And so because of Jesus, the king who went to a cross to offer a relationship with God out of pure grace, we follow him. 
We invite him in. We surrender all to him because he's worth it. As we read last week, in light of his mercies, we live our lives as living sacrifices. In light of his mercies, we give him our whole selves. And he makes us whole. He transforms us and renews us for the glory of his name and the good of all. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.